the 1031 exchange is not a loophole. It's a savings enhancement that also allows people more discretion in terms of timing their own exposure to capital gains. Hey, everybody. We want to give you a preview of what's going to be coming up in episode 261 of the Real Estate Rundown. I'm going to be interviewing Mark Hamilton. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the value of a 1031 exchange and what that means to accumulate real wealth in real estate and how you can use that as a personal financial savings strategy, plus all the ins and outs of multifamily investment. So you're going to want to tune back in. Mark's going to talk to us about how he has grown his company, Hamilton Zanes, for over the last 20 years and how they specialize in multifamily investments and what his passion is for 1031 Exchange and why that's something you're going to want to know. So if you're looking to learn about 1031 Exchange and how to use real estate investing to build your personal financial savings, you're definitely going to want to tune into this next episode of the Real Estate Rundown. Welcome to the RobNet Real Estate Rundown Podcast where Shannon Robnett has handpicked industry experts to discuss all aspects of investing in the real estate world and seeks to help all real estate investors improve their education and their proven strategies to grow their real estate journeys. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I am interviewing Mark Hamilton. Mark, how are you? I'm good, Shannon. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, so I, I, I understand that you've only been doing this for 20 years. Uh, and so with that, uh, yeah, you know, right? Uh, anybody that's survived in real estate for more than about four years is uh, getting close to a career. And any, anybody over 15 is legendary, right? Because there's so much that goes on in real estate that people just don't survive. But in uh, your, it can have it, it, it can have a short life cycle for some, that's for sure. Yeah, but in your career, you've you've developed almost 40 properties in, in the Bay Area. Your main focus has been on locating value add to change urban neighborhoods. You've been working with high quality buildings with high income tenants, improving traffic profiles, higher resale values, but you've done that with specific tax strategies involved. So Mark, kind of tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the real estate space and then take us to sure. the place where your company is today and what your passion is. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, so my, my career really kind of exists in, in, in two halves, not quite halves, but let's just pretend they are. Uh, from 1985 to 2001, uh, I really specialized in the close end Bay area of Northern California, mostly San Francisco and Oakland. Um, but also invested in a few other communities, uh, some of the other suburbs in the Bay Area. So that was between 1985 and 2000. Uh, and I did about 40 projects uh, over those 15 years. Uh, starting in 2001, I became partners with Tony Zanz, um, who was also uh, working some of the same markets that I was. And since, 2000, uh, since 2001, we've acquired about 215 uh, multifamily communities. Uh, eventually throughout the United States. We started on the West Coast and, and then just gradually went East. But in my, you know, in the first portion of my career, I really started using the 1031 exchange in the 90s. And then since Tony and I formed Hamilton Zans in 2001, probably 80 to 85% of our acquisitions have had exchanges involved. And given the way we structure them, uh, 
which is uh, really one of three ways, either as a separate account for a high net worth uh, individual or uh, in a Delaware statutory trust uh, configuration. But we also, most of our transactions have been tenant and common structures. And so, you know, with those, there could be, there could easily be 10 to 15 exchangers in, in one of those transactions. And as, as such, we've, we've literally uh, facilitated two to 3,000 exchanges uh, in our uh, property acquisition. So it, is, it, it has been an important driver for our business. So, Mark, let's back up for, for those of my listeners that aren't quite familiar with it. What is, when you keep talking about an exchange, and you and I, you know, we, we, we know it as the, the exchange, but what, what really is it? What's its formal name, and, and what is it really designed to do? Okay, so uh, a 1031 exchange refers to the section of the, of the tax code, uh, section 1031. And it's, it, it, it requires a, something that can be defined as a like-kind exchange, which means effectively uh, uh, selling or relinquishing is the term they use in the code, uh, a piece of property, a piece of real estate, real property. It can't be personal property or securities or one thing or another. But you dispose of that. You put your funds uh, uh, with an exchange accommodator who's uh, most specifically not you. If you take the funds yourself, that's deemed to be constructive receipt and your, your opportunity to do the exchange has just vanished. But there are all kinds of qualified intermediaries um, who, who, work, who work in this trade and uh, have it down to a science so that it's fairly simple. And then once you locate uh, a property you wish to purchase, uh, then you instruct the intermediary to, to wire those funds uh, to escrow. and in the simplest terms, the, the investor's burden is this. Uh, take all of the equity uh, that you got free of the property that you sold, reinvest all of that or more in a replacement property. That's one piece. The second piece is look at the financing balance that you had um, on that asset and replace that balance, obviously with a new loan, um, or more in the property that you purchase. And if you do that and follow the other protocols, you will complete a 1031 exchange, which allows you to defer the gain uh, that you would otherwise have paid with that sale and, and probably the recapture also and defer that uh, until a later day. It, it might be uh, upon the, the disposition of the replacement property, you could do another 1031. Right. And in our research, we, we authored a paper uh, that I thought the team did a terrific job with that was uh, co-authored by CBRE, uh, the 10 public policy benefits of the 1031. I mean, it's widely characterized as a loophole. We think that that's less than fully accurate. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and we say that in part because most people, 85 to 90% of people who do an exchange, they may do another one. They may even do, they may even do a second one, but 85 to 90% of people, it's a temporary strategy for them to time um, their exposure to capital gains. And, and again, 85 to 90% of the time, people will liquidate. And as such, the public treasuries actually make more money. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it's, it has a bad rap. It's, it's something that people say keeps the wealthy wealthy. Uh, and, you know, yet the reality is we're typically we're buying into something that needs repair, something that needs to be have some value added. 
very rarely does somebody sell something that is a cash flowing asset and exchange it for a very similar cash flowing asset. Typically, one will take an asset, bring it up in value, like you've done throughout your yes. career, value yes. add, take it from a C minus property to a B plus property, capture that value, turn that to someone else who just wants to collect coupons and get checks in the mail, and then move that money into a new project that is now a C minus that you're going to convert to a B plus on the next one. And so you're really, you're really transacting to, to continue to improve. And the reality is if you're going to pay 20% uh, of your profits as a penalty for selling, most people won't. Uh, they'll, they'll, well, yeah, you raised two really good points there. First of all, uh, again, the data that we relied on for this uh, paper, the data are clear that when people, uh, when an investor does a 1031 exchange, the net spending that the investor does on the property is significantly higher than when an investor simply pays cash for a piece of property. And so, you know, we, we relied on uh, information in a fairly well-known uh, academic paper called the Ling Petrova paper uh, that was authored, I believe, originally in 2015 by professors Ling and Petrova. They read, they updated it recently, but their information is compelling. And, and again, net spending on assets, job creating spending, yeah. uh, spending that, that, that purchases materials that create sales tax is all much higher when, when someone does a 1031 exchange. Yeah. And the other thing to your sec to your second point about, you know, investor mindset, you know, do I want to, do I want to do a 1031 exchange or do I just want to be left alone because I'd have to pay the capital gains tax? There's, there's another compelling data set. And it is this, that six out of seven people who open an exchange account, um, obviously, completing a sale, intending to do the 1031, six out of seven of those investors never complete their exchange. Wow. However, they, they sold the property anticipating that they would. So we think that that creates uh, liquidity in the markets. We think it creates uh, transactional velocity. And because those six transactions took place, cities and counties made transfer taxes that they wouldn't have otherwise made. And, you know, I, I think I think you and I could probably agree that those cities and counties liked having that yeah. that tax income, <laughs> and because I haven't heard too many of them complain that they have too much tax income. Right, right. You know, I would have never honestly guessed that that I, I would have never guessed that a simple majority uh, weren't completing exchanges, let alone uh, six of seven not completing exchanges. That is that is extraordinary. Was that was that a was that a wide date? stamp or was that, you know, was that lately because of the heat of the market or is that, is that over the last 15 years? Is that, you know, we learned about that from one of our joint venture partners, um, one of our New York joint venture partners about two years ago. And, and this particular institution is, is tied very closely to 1031 activity. Right. So we thought their, we thought their information ought, ought to be, ought to be reliable, but sure. I think that data, I'm, I'm just going to guess and tell you that that data set probably covered, you know, preceding three yeah. to five years. Um, I would think so. Uh, you know, but I, again, I'm just, uh, I'm a little bit flabbergasted at, at that being that high, but you know, uh, there again, it got the, it got the ball rolling. What they chose to do with it is up to them. Right. Yes. 
Yes. So. But again, we think that that creates that there's that, that the public treasuries, especially uh, the IRS and any uh, uh, state uh, taxing agencies um, are better off because those yeah. six transactions that didn't complete resulted in a harvest for them of, of taxable revenue that, that, that I would argue they, they might not have had. Absolutely. So, so Mark, you, you mentioned a lot about, you know, partnerships and people that you're working with and all of those kinds of things. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys, you and, and Zans structure your deals. You know, we come downhill. I, I like to refer to us as an overgrown backyard syndicator because um, that's what our, you know, our roots are, our roots are friends and family. And uh, it's always been that case. We've never taken an investor that we didn't know or didn't get to know before taking an investor. Um, you know, we follow uh, the safe harbor of Reg D uh, as a securities issuer. And, 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 and that requires us to do that, that requires us to do a variety of things, including getting to know the investor. So we make sure that it's somebody we know or have come to know um, and have been able to you know, establish for ourselves as much as possible that it's going to be suitable for them. And, um, and then we, we simply notify, you know, we notify our clients what we're working on. We're generally always working on an acquisition. Um, in part because we always pretty much have our own 10, 1031 exchanges going on and we right. need to get them, you know, we need to get them complete, uh, completed, but we'll notify people. Um, and then uh, uh, between, and, and we work with accredited investors. Um, and so between uh, our accredited investors that we stay in touch with and any uh, friends, family, colleagues, or referrals who we have who need to complete their own 1031 exchange, um, we're always kind of in the process of firming up uh, capital availability, and we're constantly looking for new opportunities. Um, and that's that's probably eighty percent of our business. Uh, we we are a joint venture partner uh, with a with a significant New York firm uh, on their DST platform uh, for multifamily. So in those instances, they raise most of the money, um, and we we've also done a, a oh probably thirty to forty. Uh, transactions with institutions, uh, some of which are household names. Uh, but we're usually going to follow, you know, one of those three strategies. Sometimes we'll meet a, a family or a high net worth investor that, that needs their own, um, that needs their own solution. Right. Uh, and so in those cases, it's usually just us and them. We won't put other investors in those. But we have a few different strategies that we follow. And, you know, in, in ancient days, when you were probably still riding a tricycle or before, um, you know, we were doing, we were doing rough stuff um, or let's just say rougher stuff in San Francisco and, and, and Oakland. And, and most of it was property that we could see daylight in that it needed, it needed a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of tough love. Um, and so, you know, it was very heavily about a renovation business and, and over the last 35 years, it's evolved to, we still do some of that. I mean, we'll still do plenty of value add or um, heavy lifting on projects, but I'd say it's more balanced now. And we have probably probably 40 to 60% of our acquisitions in any given year are going to be what we would call core plus. Uh, it means right. they're newer. They don't need as much heavy lifting. Um, and they're really intended to be more of a long-term uh, cash flow and growth mechanism rather than primarily growth. 
you know, and, and it's funny. I want to I want to back up here because you said that you are a, a, a overgrown backyard syndicator. Um, Mark, I don't think that's accurate. The, the number I have here is that your 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 acquisitions are right over just over four billion dollars. Is that is that an accurate um, number? So well, actually, it's not. Actually, it's all right. So actually, it's not because we just passed the uh, five billion dollar threshold. Oh, right, right. And, okay. um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I I use the the word overgrown advisedly, um, but uh, you know maybe it just comforts me to think about us as you know the kids from the block. Um, but yeah, we've done a really good job uh, growing the organization, growing the portfolio, um, and 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 helping investors achieve good returns and it's worked out and you know we've never fed it artificially we've never taken a uh an investor into the business entities um and it's it's just been a gradual one day at a time uh approach that has taken us from from or taken me i should say from from two units to twenty three thousand units sure and you so so you can very clearly state that in uh that you have become an overnight success 20 years in the making, right? I mean, I, I would think, I would think <laughs> yeah. that's about as yeah. accurate a description as your overgrown backyard syndicator description of the size of your business, Mark. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and then because you like to do the 1031 exchange, because you like to churn the property, how often does that $5 billion turn over? Are you turning that portfolio every four to five, six years? Is that it's a really good question. Yeah. So back in the 80s, we were probably holding things one to three years. Um, and then by the by the early 2000s, uh, life cycle of a transaction was probably more like two to four years. Um, you know, half a dozen years on, it was probably more like four to six years where the, the, the holding period of the of the properties in our portfolio has lengthened yeah. uh, considerably over time. And that doesn't necessarily reflect ideology, although we are trying to take longer term positions for sure. Um, but let's face it, you know, cap rates have tumbled. Uh, the market is awash in capital. And if you think you're going to find something that's going to allow you to double or triple your money in, in three years, I want to know your pharmacist. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny you say that, too, because, you know, all of those things are correct. But then the one thing that I heard you say was the quality of the deal you're going after. Instead of seeing something that is a, is a D minus, trying to get it up to a C plus or maybe a B minus, you're going after core plus, which is a better asset class that uh, mm -hmm. weathers storms better. You know, you've kind of stepped up your game uh, out of the backyard to, you know, uh, buying and acquiring better uh, better properties that that you would want to hold longer because you're not just, you know, not, not that you ever did a fix and flip, but, you know, the heavier the lift, the easier it is to make the money quicker because of all of the expertise that you're pouring in instead of core plus where you're getting something that, yeah, maybe a paint, some paint here, some new management there, some policies and procedure changes that really bring that value up. Am, am I am I kind of going in the right direction here? Where you you've gotten absolutely. We like a value add deal as much as anybody, and uh, you know, at you any make it sound like time, a, we, like a guilty pleasure, like eating a cheeseburger or something. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, that's that's everybody's first date, right? That's yeah, everybody's that's first right. love as a value, you know, as a value add deal, and 
you know, at any given time, we probably have 75 to $100 million of projects going on on our portfolio. But on, a, on an average basis, we're, we're, as you said, we're buying better right now. We're buying better assets. We're buying properties that we can hold longer. And I think, I think that that's probably equally due to uh, having a number of positions that we've grown hard over, over lifespans as long as 20 or 30 years. I, yeah. I mean, I literally still have partnerships that I put together in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, those positions have grown phenomenally. Um, but curiously, people, you know, people get to a point after their, you know, after some number of exchanges where they, they literally say, do we have to keep doing this? Can't we just hold something and take the <laughs> cash flow? And so, you know, we're, we're getting more of that, you know, so we're getting, we're getting, uh, our duration is getting longer uh, because of that. But again, the other thing is, you know, we are never much of a C minus player. We probably dabbled in C plus to B minus a bit, um, but there's just so much capital. Um, yeah. in that in that arena um, that it's hard to get things that that we think are priced for the uh, for for an investment thesis that makes sense they're just returns are really compressed they are they are and you know there there's there's a lot to be said about that you know the value add space getting more and more crowded and, and being able to uh, level up your game and go to a different level. Um, but, you know, and I often make the comparison, uh, you know, between myself and my investment strategy and my father, who, you know, is at that place where he's got the lumps, he's got the battle scars, he's done the deals, sure. he's got the trophy, yep. you know, now it's about cash flow and motorhome fuel, right? It's about, it's about enjoying Absolutely. life to do the things that you want to do. And an exchange is work. You know, every time you're doing an exchange and every time you're taking down a, a, another property, your, your investors aren't seeing it, but there's a whole machine behind that that you've had to create that has turned that into there. But you use the term, you use it to build financial savings. Tell me how, how your particular brand, the, the Hamilton Zans brand, is building the financial savings thought process in your investors. Because that's not a term I've heard before. And I just want to drill into that and make sure that we can extract that from my listeners as to what, what you're building. Well, thank you for thank you for that point. I, I do think that um, and, and I won't tell you that I came up with the term. It was uh, it was in our paper. It was uh, uh, coined uh, by one of the other staffers in our organization um, that the 1031 exchange is not a loophole. It's a savings. Uh, it's a savings enhancement that also allows people more discretion in terms of timing their own uh, exposure to capital gains. And again, the, between the between the two uh, the two data sets, uh, we know that eighty to ninety percent of people will not be in many more exchanges than just two or three. So that's going to expose that money to to the taxing to the taxing authorities, right? Mark, um, I'm and laughing, so it, I'm laughing real quick because most people aren't involved in more than two or three, but your organization alone has swung that data so far the other way because of the number you guys have been involved with. How many exchanges did you say you've been involved with? Well, if uh, you know, back in the early 2000s um, uh, with uh, CMBS loans, you could put as many as 35 different people on title. And so we had, uh, you know, we had, we had easily a dozen, we had easily a dozen transactions where we might've had anywhere between 15 and 35 people on title. Uh, when the CS, uh, CMBS market got strained and it became, you know, really an agency universe, 
uh, initially the agencies didn't want to have more than five people on title, but we're able to work with them and get, you know, generally 10, sometimes maybe a dozen people on title. But if you count each one of those as an individual exchange, which I promise you, everybody's CPA and the IRS will tell you that each one of those is an exchange. That's right. You know, we've probably done, we've probably done an average of 15 exchanges, 12 to 15 exchanges on 210 to 220 acquisitions. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a material number, but, yeah. uh, but again, those people, I, I can't, I, I cannot tell you that those people don't eventually pay their taxes. They do. No. A lot of them will eventually take their chips off the table. They may have other reasons for, you know, they'll, they'll have other reasons for paying their taxes, but they're able to time. Right. And, and along the way, by doing the exchange, uh, the real estate industry has by virtue of that, has caused more people to spend more money on asphalt and roofs yeah. and siding and windows, which is taxable sales almost everywhere, and has caused has caused contractors uh, to have more business and create yeah. make more payroll tax. And then in the end, eighty to ninety percent of people will simply choose not to do an exchange. And on the ones that that do, Six out of seven won't complete it because they can't find something that feels quite right. So it's already we think it's already a very efficient tax mechanism and that, um, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater could hurt cities and counties and maybe even states. Yeah, no. And and, and you bring a different mindset to it or a different thought process, because, you know, with all the data that you have. And that's the thing that I love when you when I get the opportunity to speak with professionals like yourself is you really get to the data behind the thought process. And. And everybody likes to go, well, you know, this and that. But when you really drill into the data that there are so many that are that are done that um, that don't get properly executed or finished, uh, that really does lead to a lot of tax revenues. Plus, you know, like you said, there are very few people that continue to exchange indefinitely. At some point, that tax, Mm -hmm. those tax Mm -hmm. dollars do come due. Um, You know, there's a few that may fall into the inheritance that gets. Uh, that gets leveled mm-hmm. up on that as far as, uh, you know, uh, the, through the, that inheritance process. But most, I mean, and there comes a point when you can't go any farther. You have to pay the taxes. And that was always the, the, the thought process behind the IRS saying that we'll get our taxes eventually. Um, yes. You know, and Mark, we're sitting, we're, we're sitting here in a place in history where, you know, while, the, while it may be contemplated as to what happens to capital gains tax, we know that it's never been less. So when you have something right. that has never been less right. in history, that capital gains tax is what eighteen and a half percent, I believe, on the federal level. Um, um, I would have said twenty, but go ahead. Yeah, you're right, twenty percent. Uh, so at twenty percent, um, you know, why is it that you you guys feel that the ten, so strongly about the ten thirty one instead of just paying the taxes now, uh, moving into different administrations, bringing on different thought processes? I mean, because eventually you are going to pay it. Wouldn't you just pay it currently? Sure. Well, for one thing, that's not our shot to call. You know, it's up to the individual investor. Yeah. And um, and for people who are invested in our partnerships that um, that participate in exchanges at the partnership level, again, anytime we sell one of those assets or have a capital event, some some number of that population will take chips off the table and pay yeah. their taxes. So I really do think that it's a timing mechanism. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, the data is there that people, you know, you don't hear a lot of people crying in the streets saying, I'm one of those six people who didn't get my exchange completed, right? right. Or, never, you know, yeah, I, I'm, heard about them. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those 85 people that decided not to do my exchange, right? right? It just, right. it happens quietly. People time it as they see fit. You know, nobody's crying over, over spilled milk. If they don't get it done, they move on. And, and that's clearly the, I mean, at least in the current, uh, in the in the current paradigm, which has been in place for a hundred years, that's the that's the prerogative of the taxpayer. So you know we don't make we don't make those judgment calls. Uh, we know how to how to go about doing our work in a way uh, that's favorable yeah. to the investor. And and you know we believe in creating uh, long term savings. Uh, you yeah. know we're net investors every year uh, in the portfolio, and we've just seen you know we've just seen the benefits of you know, you might call it kind of cookie jar money, you know, just making sure you're always stashing some money in that cookie jar. Right. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're putting that into good things, you ought to have uh, an increasing stash in your cookie jar every year. Right. But, you know, we think that's up to the individual investor, but we also think that uh, back to the data, you know, if, if you and I bought a property together and let's say we spent a million dollars on it and it was $250,000 down and $750,000 loan. And, you know, it turns out we pick a winner, right? And, and now we discover it's worth $2 million and still only has a $750,000 loan. Well, that's, that means that, our, that our, uh, our basis has stayed the same, the amount of investment money that we put in. In fact, our basis has probably gone down through depreciation. So our basis might only be $200,000, but now we're sitting with a million two fifty in equity. Well, guess what? That the the income that drives that equity is more exposed to taxation than the inc than the than the basis was on the first go round. So by by completing an exchange and growing your investment account, your capital account stays the same or probably goes down, which means that the income that your your upleg investment um, is producing is in fact less efficient uh, as a tax shelter than it was on round one. So, you know, again, we think of this as kind of, you know, it's a whipping boy uh, in, in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, we think that, that if people really dove into the numbers and looked at the economic impact and the tax favorable impact, I think people would see it differently. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great point. So, you know, Mark, what is it that you would give people advice for having done so many 1031s and, and seeing the number of people that fail at that what would be the one piece of advice you would give someone to make sure that you're successful in a 1031? That's a really good question. Uh, and a lot of it depends on size, right? I mean, any, anybody who, who, has, who has the savings to do it and has the time uh, can go out and find something. It's hard to do, but to go out and find something that, that has the appearance of being a, a good candidate for, for, an, for a successful real estate acquisition. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the first thing you got to do is um, you got to address your, you know, the scope of the exchange that, or of the acquisition that, that you want to target. Is it, is it a $250,000 house? Is it a two and a half million dollar apartment property? And so you got to, you got to size your, you know, you got to size your war chest accordingly. And then you also have to think about what kind of uh, transaction opportunity you're going to have. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you want to buy, if you want to buy a $250,000 fixer upper and uh, you're in the Boise housing market, which is on fire right now, and you can't touch even a, 
you can't even touch a wreck for $500,000, well, you need to reassess. But you, you can do an exchange, you can do an acquisition on your own, you can do it in a partnership with friends or family, uh, you can invest with sponsors uh, like us. Now, a REIT, you know, investing in REIT stock won't get you there because that's stock. You're buying, right. you're buying stock. But I'd say, you know, suitability is the most important thing. Are you suitable for, for doing real estate investment on your own? Do you feel like you'd be better off throwing your lot in with some friends or family? Um, do you feel like you'd be better off throwing your lot in with a sponsor? So, you know, you got to kind of got to decide your target first. And then you also have to be comfortable being in an illiquid investment um, that may call for some heavy lifting at times. You know, you might you might be you might be in Austin, Texas, and you might have a great fourplex and a big thunderstorm comes through and rips your roof off. Right now, if you've if you've if you've arranged your insurance appropriately, you'll be fine. But there's still brain damage that, that yes. has to be has to be absorbed. I, I think, Mark, you're, you're giving us uh, uh, something from your past experiences uh, with being being in Austin, Texas. Uh, I was just down Been there, did, did that bit, was just down that way last uh, last week and they were having some severe weather. So, yeah, it's it's interesting too. you know, how, yep. how, that, how that goes into it. Everybody thinks that, you know, Chef Tony invented real estate. You set it and forget it. But there's still a lot that goes on with that that people forget. No question. Involved, no being question. involved with someone that's done five billion. No, sorry, has five billion dollars in assets. Uh, what do you best guess? What do you think the total transactional number is uh, for our shop? Yes, sir. We have acquired. Uh, we've acquired approximately two hundred ten to two hundred twenty uh, apartment properties at Hamilton Zans in the last twenty years. Uh, we don't. We don't include the tally uh, of my of my portfolio before oh, that yeah. or Tony's talent. Let's, talent not, jade, let's portfolio. not jade everybody and, and look to it. Well, yeah, we're not, where the average man can get their hands around it. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to blow it up with those years. Um, so we've done, we've done five, we've done about 5 billion, 200 million of acquisitions in the last 20 years, uh, 200 and let's just call it 210 properties, 220 properties. We've sold about 110 um, properties as well. But again, when we sell, we're we're almost always going to go do the, two, the do the ten thirty one exchange, and yeah. right now our portfolio um, probably sits uh, at a valuation of about four billion dollars, and you know we're buying buying more this year. We were, yeah. we've already closed between what we've um, between what we've closed and what we have uh, in the pipeline. We're we're already about. I think we'll close the third quarter at about 500 million in acquisitions for the year. For the year, not. But not, I think you know, not too sure. There's still another quarter to go. No, yeah, it's 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 working. It's hard work right now yeah. because it's just so competitive. Yeah. Um, so having been in the industry uh, for the for the it, what in a lot of people's would be three or four lifetimes of real estate because like we like we discussed earlier, they just don't last. What would you tell your younger self? Hmm, interesting question. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know that my first 15 years would have been that different. Um, you know, if I had reached out from the future and, and said, do these things differently. I, I don't know that they would have been that different. Um, and uh, the last 20 years, 
You know, I think, you know, it comes down to very basic things. It, it is a one day at a time business. It, it doesn't pay to get ahead of yourself. Um, and at the same time, you, you have to be willing to, to push yourself. And, you know, once upon a time, and I think 2004, uh, Tony and I had, uh, had two, two acquisition opportunities. Uh, one was uh, $4 million and one was $5 million. And, uh, you know, we were just getting to the size to, to be able to do that. And he was concerned that, you know, that we were going to have to pick between the two. And, and I just felt really confident that we were going to be able to do them both. And so when he said, which one do we want to do? I said, well, let's just do them both. We can do it. And, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're getting in front of your own audience, uh, you know, if you're, if you're taking investment capital from friends and family and you're staying close to the work and you treat it as a one day at a time thing, um, your, you know, your chances are going to be really good. And, you know, I guess that's probably the advice I would give yeah. is that, um, you know, you take it one day at a time and you try not to get too tied up in the highs or the lows. Right. Um, and, and you just keep going. You're probably going to have an easier time of it. Um, Cause when I, you know, when I, when I started, when my wife and I bought our first property in 1985, you know, we were both 27 and it just felt like, you know, it felt like each individual transaction was, was, was the entirety of the world. And, um, you know, that everything, you know, that everything about the future was going to come out of one transaction and guess what? They didn't, they came out right. of all of them. Right. And, and, and that happened because we just stayed with it. Yeah. No, consistency has a lot to do with it for sure. But you know, Mark, you, you are probably the first person in 260 interviews that has told me that real estate is a day by day deal. And, you know, when I think of it, I look at what you're doing today and how that builds on tomorrow, but it has, um, it has no carryover. Tomorrow you start over, right? What you did That's today right. left in today right. and that transaction is closed or it's walked away from, or it's a lot of things, but you've got to start over tomorrow and prove you can do it. No again. question. Uh, no question. So, so I, I, man, I really appreciate you stopping by the real estate rundown here, Mark, and, and just giving us some of this insight knowledge. We don't often get somebody of your caliber here that can, that is so open, that is just able to just uh, be as transparent as you have been. I really do appreciate it. So for my listeners though, where can they reach out to you in the, in the, in the, in the world and find you and follow you sure. and become more acquainted with your company? So uh, we have a pretty good website. Uh, Hamilton Zans. It tells the story well. It's very user friendly. Um, it's easy on the eyes. It's easy to take. Um, and, you know, it just reiterates a lot of our basic ideology, shows our footplate, gives uh, gives an overview of the company. Um, and then otherwise, um, my email address is Mark, M-A-R-K, at Hamilton, H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N, Z as in zebra, A. N is in Nancy, Z is in zebra, E is in Edward.com. Wow. You won't find me on Facebook. You won't find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> but but you guys, I just got you a an email address from a superpower executive guy. So so thanks for tuning in, everybody, to the this next episode this episode of the Real Estate Rundown Market. Again, I want to thank you. Uh, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe uh, to the Real Estate Rundown on Podchaser, Spotify, iTunes. We are on Facebook. We do have our Instagram account. So follow us there. You'll see the updates. You'll see uh, Mark on there. We, we appreciate you guys. We know that this show is about you guys and bringing information to you. So leave a review. I love to hear the feedback. And Mark, once again, I really appreciate you coming by and giving us this knowledge. It has been super, super helpful. You bet, Shannon. Thank you so much. I hope we have a chance to talk again.
Absolutely. Thanks again, Mark.